0: Hello fellow B2B nerds, and welcome to the Merkle B2B Demand Gen Blueprint Podcast. My name's Tim Brogan, I'm a B2B paid media strategist, and I've been working with marketers, planners and specialists who design and deliver demand gen programs for the past 10 years. Over the course of this series, I'll be hosting discussions which unpack demand gen program design, and you'll hear from experts in strategy, ABM, media and analytics who'll be sharing key trends and industry best practice to help you design more effective demand gen experiences. We have some fantastic guests here today to talk about the role of content and paid media in demand generation, coming from the publishing and the tech world. First up, joining us in the studio here in Sydney, we have Joanna Woods, Global Client Executive at LinkedIn, who I've happened to work with for a number of years. Joe, thanks for joining us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do at LinkedIn and how you help clients?
1: Thanks, Tim. Yes, I work in the strategic accounts organisation within LinkedIn's marketing solutions team. For those unfamiliar, LinkedIn has got a few different business units. We've got talent solutions, sales solutions, and we've got marketing solutions. So what my team does is help marketers understand the professional community on linkedin there's a lot of insights that we can provide on what their buying behavior is what their con- content consumption looks like and there's a lot of help that we can offer in terms of identifying you know how best to engage and when best to reach them
0: awesome thanks joe on the line from Singapore, we've also got Jason Gerad, the managing director of Foundry's APAC business. Jason, I know it's your day off today, and I really appreciate you coming in to have a chat with me, mate. I have been working with IDG probably since the start of my career when I was a young pup 10 years ago buying content syndication leads. Mate, so thank you once more for joining us. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your role and how you help clients?
2: Sure. As mentioned, I look after Asia and the Middle East, Turkey, Africa. So we have offices, as you would expect, uh, across the globe. Prior to taking this role on full-time, I also worked on the IDC side for a group known as Custom Solutions, where we would effectively build bespoke research programs that gave tech buyers and tech suppliers insights into various trends, pricing strategies, marketing strategies, and we would also help them contextualize certain marketing materials to address the needs of their client base. So it's quite similar to To that, even on the Foundry slash IDG side, really we look at matching up the tech buyer community with the tech supplier community. We do have a few publications that focus on B2C, but the primary area of focus for the business is really B2B and really is tech.
0: Awesome. Mate, very excited to have you here as part of this today. So thank you again. Thank you. Last but not least, Jeff Sexton, client strategist at The Trade Desk, the world's largest independent demand side platform. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. What is a demand side platform? Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about that and about how you help clients? Certainly.
3: I look after sales strategy across Australia and New Zealand, part of the broader org that sits in APAC. But essentially what we do is connect brands or advertisers with the open internet. We only represent advertisers so we are the largest independent but objective DSP so a big part of what we do is ensure true objectivity and transparency and what we offer is a as an omnichannel connection to that space which is the largest time spent online for consumers as well as B2B decision makers so what we do fundamentally is develop omnichannel strategies for those brands helping them activate and
0: connect with their
3: audiences
0: Awesome, mate. Thank you very much for joining us. I think we have three really interesting viewpoints here. Everyone has a different vantage point in the market, but it's all about how we're connecting advertisers to audiences. What I wanted to start off with was obviously there's been a tremendous amount of change in the market where there's a really murky kind of macroeconomic backdrop a lot of uncertainty for businesses, budgets are being cut. I'd be really interested to know what you guys are talking to clients about at the moment and how strategies are changing. Joe, maybe starting with you and just hearing a bit about what you're speaking to clients about.
1: Yeah, well, I think interestingly over the last few years on LinkedIn in particular, we've seen an enormous increase in engagement for obvious reasons. I think everybody can appreciate the changes that we've gone through in our roles. And globally, people overnight had to suddenly leave the actual office and have a virtual office, which meant that platforms like LinkedIn were sort of like the main place to connect and have a space to speak candidly among the professional community. So the engagement on the platform has changed a lot. I represent tech clients and from the recent tech research that we've released, there's a 20% engagement increase in the tech buying committee's usage of LinkedIn and their engagement with articles and all that sort of thing. So it's increasing. And I think that makes sense because, We haven't returned back to the office, so we're not seeing people commuting on the bus. You know, there's been the old-fashioned spikes at lunchtime and pre and post work. It's now pretty much 24-7 people are using LinkedIn in a way that they ever used to. In terms of APAC, we're actually finding there's incredible growth, particularly in India. This year, the members in India were going to surpass the amount of members that we have in the United States, which is nuts given that (laughs) it's a US tech company. (laughs) In terms of content consumption during the pivot a lot of my clients that are in tech were in boom. There was a hell of a lot of demand for their thought leadership, their products. So they were competing in a very cluttered space. Now there's obviously been a big retraction, but industries that were in freeze mode over that time are now booming, such as education and financial services as well. So there's no sort of one size fits all, but broadly we're still seeing a lot of engagement. Interesting.
0: And Jason, I know that you're having discussions with senior marketing leaders and you're Clients and their businesses. What do those discussions look like, and how are marketing leaders adapting to some of the changes in the market now?
2: I don't think it's so much that they're adapting to changes. I think it's they're refocusing on things that, if they weren't before, they should have been core. And that's really around performance and ROI of their investment. So, looking at content, how it's being engaged with, how it's performing. So, it's a lot more metric based than even before. Again, I don't think the fundamental practice of the marketeers, at least as we see them, has changed all that much. But the demands, as you pointed out, murky macroeconomic background, is really supercharging the need to say, OK, if I spend X amount of dollars in marketing on anything, I want to make sure it's performing. And I know this kind of bleeds into to other questions you're going to have around ABM and intent and AI. And so really, that's the big, I don't even want to call it a trend. It's just a refocus. Got
0: it. Jeff, I'd like to hear from you as well, because you have a bit of a different look and you're probably really close to changes in content consumption behavior Mm. being in the programmatic world and having a view of many different vehicles. What are your thoughts? How are clients changing strategies if they are?
3: Certainly. I mean, there's a lot of change. I think the first thing we see when it comes down to that sort of economic uncertainty is the immediate reconsideration of brand spend. And that is a very sort of age old problem. The first thing that people tend to reconsider are those upper funnel, I suppose, more awareness driven channels. And what happens is that we get this sometimes measurement or proximity paralysis where people are drawn to the most measurable channels or where the greatest ROI is able to be attributed. So I think one of the biggest, most important conversations to have in that time is that we know disproportionately when there is economic uncertainty or downturn is that investing in brand has disproportionate returns. That's what happens. So one of the conversations that we have a lot is about holding the line there, but there's also commercial realities of economic downturn around what does that mean for your budget so people are constantly reassessing how to strike a balance there where they don't completely abandon up funnel or what they're doing to nurture the full purchase journey to only move towards bottom funnel and performance driving or demand generation or capture so it's i think it's really important to have that nuanced conversation and be quite frank about the Realities that you're facing as a brand, but also the consequences of completely shifting too quickly. And I think finding that balance is the most challenging, but also the most rewarding part of this process.
0: Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. And a lot of the research that I've read points to brands who invest during a downturn tend Mm. to see better growth when things come back up again. And I think that reminds me, Joe, there's a lot of really good research that's coming out of your B2B Institute. And a lot of that's based on the long and short of it. So the Binet and Field research that's come out and the need to strike a balance between brand and activation. Do you see that? being done well at the moment or do you see that
1: being a risk? To the point that Jeff was making, I think there's just a lot of short-termism at the moment. And Mm. I can understand that because I'm in a sales team that also has got short-term sort of deals that we need to close. But often when we're doing that and we're focusing on that, we're just capturing that existing demand. So a lot of the B2Bi speaks around a lot of numbers. We've got the 95 to 5 rule, and that is that 95% of your target audience are currently not in market for your product. Only 5% are currently in the bottom of the funnel looking for vendors because they're ready to pull the trigger and sign off on a deal. And when we're talking about B2B, it's not buying some toothpaste because they've run out. These are long sales cycles and they've gone through a long process to get there. So with that in mind, it's really important, recession or not, to spend not 95% of your budget but still assign a portion of your budget to nurturing that audience. Our CMO had an article this week, I think pre-Khan, talking around to shift away from talking about the funnel and saying that it shouldn't be top bottom middle funnel we should be talking about generating demand and capturing demand because it's all a demand driven play Mm. it's just brand awareness is a way that you can build your pipeline out so yeah that's the way that we've been talking about it have I seen it not necessarily but I do think that probably when we're through this because recessions won't last forever there'll be some companies that have done a really good job of focusing on the out of market and then reaping the rewards because they've built that mental availability and built up a brand presence.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to shift the discussion a little bit and I want to understand what Foundry is doing, what LinkedIn is doing and what Trade Desk are doing to help advertisers get closer to their audience and customers at this time. And Jason, I think I'll start with you because Foundry from when I used to work with you guys is IDG versus Foundry Now has changed immeasurably and particularly in the last couple of years. But I'd be really interested in hearing about the acquisitions, some of the technology that that you guys have started to bring into the business and how that's changing you as a publisher.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tectonic shifts. I think in the ten years that I was doing the dual role between IDC and Foundry, I've seen the business disrupted three times. So the strategy that we put forward as of two years ago really was to become the disruptor. So While we're still leading with our brands, uh, we've made heavy investments into editorial because we want our readers drive basically our secret sauce, our first-party data. But we're moving away from a traditional role of a publisher where you serve ads, run events, do a little bit of content, generate a few leads. We're really moving into the software space. So the acquisitions you're talking about, notably, and most recently, we picked up Selling Simplified, the lead generation group. My CEO refers to that, a software company that does lead gen, and he's not incorrect in that assessment. But maybe more interesting would be the other companies that are fitting into what's going to be our product MarTech stack. So we've bought an intent engine, we've bought an IP reveal company, and we bought an ABM orchestration platform. So we're combining all of those and moving into a managed service model where we're going to be going out to market and really using a mixture of intent data and our first party data to say to users, hey. You decide how you want to action leads in conjunction with your own first-party data, how you want to interact with your target audience. Do you want to serve the mats? Do you want leads generating against a very specific client set in a far more efficient, cost-effective, and automated manner? Now, we're still doing a lot of our core business as offerings to the market, right? We're not moving away from events or general lead gen, but it really does represent a shift from a traditional publisher model into a more software-driven business. And in conjunction with that, there are a lot of efforts to unify our data sets with the data sets that are being produced by the research side, the IDC analysts. Yeah, very different for us. It's interesting times at Foundry.
0: It is, mate, night and day compared to what I've seen from Foundry in the past and really excited to see where that goes and how we can start bringing that into to our programs. And Joe, I'd like to understand what the roadmap looks like for LinkedIn and, and what you guys are doing from a data perspective, and particularly around ABM, and how you're helping advertisers get closer to their audiences?
1: Similarly to what Jason was saying about the Foundry, the biggest asset that we have for advertisers is our first-party data. We have the world's largest database of the professional business world. So there's just a lot that we can offer. I think when we consider the B2B world, it's complex, and the products that are being sold are reaching a vast buying committee of at least nine people with different functions, different ways they interact with content, different reasons they're on the platform, and different reasons why particular advertisers' messaging might resonate with them. And all of their behaviors on LinkedIn are data points that we're able to pick up and then use for insights that we can offer advertisers. Probably one of the things that we've had around for a while, it's on a new innovation, but probably is underused is our insights tag. So any advertiser that advertises on our platform is allowed to put an insights tag on their page. And that can pick up all of the information of people that have seen or members that have seen marketing activity on LinkedIn and then come through to the website. And that's a really good tool because often with an ABM program, there's a very specific set of companies, particularly that advertisers are trying to particularly speak directly to. But you can find that there might be an over-indexing of a particular industry a job function, seniority that wasn't part of your ABM program. So it might help with planning in the future to understand why our ads resonating more with people that are from this sector or this particular company. And then once activity is live, we've got a few new things that are coming out. So we've got a conversions API that will be released to the general public by the end of the year where we can match offline and online conversions and help optimize activity and build lookalike audiences off the back of that. And another recent tool that we have is action retargeting. So based on a website action, you can optimize towards that and create audiences across LinkedIn to dial in a little bit deeper on Amazing.
0: And Jeff, the thing that I wanted to touch on here from a Trade Desk perspective is I know that your company has been doing a lot of work around CRM matching and being Mm -hmm. able to better leverage kind of first-party data sets. Absolutely. How are you guys helping people get closer to their customers?
3: I think to start with a huge part of the way the Trade Desk talks about what we do and the way we position ourselves is around data-driven advertising. And when we talk to our clients, the richest information they have, and I think Jason referred like the secret sauce is a the first-party data component. That is the most valuable asset most of our clients have when it comes to their marketing efforts. But there's a lot of challenges around that, different hesitation in different industries when it comes to activating and deploying it. We're in a position now where legislation has started to catch up with technology, which is really important. But we're also facing a landscape where some of the signals and identifiers that we rely on are being deprecated. The cookie is the big one. So what we're seeing is clients now... Moving from a place of being aware that they need to invest in an identity framework that will survive the cookie apocalypse, for lack of a better term, but we're seeing real investment in that space. So people are actually leaning in to build identity fabric based on the data that they have that will be robust, compliant, consensual, and respectful of the consumer. Because so much of what we talk about, if we dial out a little bit, we have collected all of this data in the online space and we all leapt into it. So we, as you've seen tech companies do it, we've seen social platforms, clients, advertisers. But now the public conversation around data usage, how it's collected and overt consent around that data exchange and having a mutual exchange of content for data is something that happens in a very overt way now and is increasingly overt. So that exchange for content is about creating, like, a, a, if you look at effective data deployment, it's really around creating a value exchange in a campaign that justifies the exchange of data for content, and that helps accelerate that data engine that you have. Ultimately, we see people struggling but also really leaning into investing against their first-party data, building around it, and then figuring out ways to activate against it. But also, how do they collect that? Media is not a, necessarily an endpoint, but actually a collection point for further access to first-party data. It's not about tricking people out of their information. It's about creating a value exchange that justifies that passover.
0: Do you see the balance? I really like that idea, like the value exchange for your data and giving content that's worthy of that. Absolutely. What do you think the balance is like with APAC advertisers and are we just ramming performance media down people's throats or are we delivering beautiful customer-centric journeys that deliver on that promise? I think we're on our way.
3: I think it's still too fragmented in some ways. I think that there are some examples where you can see a really cohesive exchange of data for content and then On the back of that, a really coherent consumer journey. In the B2B world, it's a lot more complicated, though. The journey is a lot longer, and it's blurry because all of these B2B decision makers are consumers as well. So when they go home and when they consume media in other environments, they don't stop becoming B2B decision makers, but they start to behave like a consumer because they are just like any other person. So... When we talk about signals and the data that you can infer, and that speaks to intent data as well, there are no silver bullets in that space. And I think we need to be careful about that. But I think fundamentally, if you bring it back to having or doing your best to create a participatory campaign, so a campaign that justifies the exchange that you're looking for, or getting access to the data that you're looking for, fundamentally is built upon delivering value. So I think that working out from that, I think we've seen a bit of a flip in that perspective. And I think we're seeing consumer data being treated with a lot more respect. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was malicious or anything like that. I think it was just a simple byproduct of the way digital advertising our industry group
0: yeah move fast and break things yeah sometimes i think we've touched on first party data we've talked a little bit about intent data so i think over the last few years particularly like intent data has become really mainstream and i can think of some kind of big names out there that focus on delivering that to advertisers and help you uncover companies that are researching your products What do we think the state of intent data looks like in APAC versus global markets where I think it grew up in?
1: Yeah. I think probably connected to ABM and intent data and all of those things becoming not just nice to haves, but absolutely a must have on a plan. The next iteration or the next nut to crack would be sales and marketing alignment. So I think I've got some anecdotal examples just in my experience within my role of the need to have sales marketing alignment, marketing programs being designed specifically to send intense signals through to a sales team, but that sales team just not being aligned from KPIs, not being able to pick up and interpret this marketing matrix that they've been given. And, you know, in some cases, the actual adoption rate of this marketing dashboard that they've been given being like 5% of the sales team probably speaks to what we were saying before about when there's a lot of demand. Sales teams don't necessarily have to go out looking Mm. (laughs) too hard for leads and there's not a lot of need to pipeline build. But I think now is the perfect time in re- heading into potential recession for these intense signals that the marketing teams are doing such a wonderful job of building and profiling, becoming completely interconnected. And I think it's probably a change management piece more than anything else because I think that there's a lot of these programs that are set up from a marketing perspective and probably the next iteration would be both marketing and sales having the set KPIs, set outcomes and things like marketing qualified leads going the way of the dodo, and both teams looking for lifetime value, looking for close one, all all that sort of stuff.
0: I think that will ring true to a lot of marketers using intent data and and that not really being picked up action. So that's really interesting. Jason, I'm sure you would have a point of view on the state of intent data in, in APAC. And I'm really interested in how it compares, I suppose, to other regions and to the globe. How are we using it here? Are we doing it effectively? Is the market robust and as healthy as it is in the US in terms of the quality of the product?
2: That's a little tricky, right? I hesitate to make binary comparisons or we're good, we're bad. I think it depends on the marketer. Within our client set, again, we're all tech B2B marketers that we're speaking to. We have some that are very adept at using it. And from a foundry product perspective, remember, we purchased a platform that we've integrated with other tech to enrich that intent data. So... When we couple that with the first-party data and we start enabling our clients to put their own first-party data into the engine as well and generate scores and serve ads effectively and generate leads, I would agree, broadly speaking, on that the MQLs will go the way of the dodo. Well, it's still a data point, right? It has to flow into something. So we always start with the MQL and then we look at things like what, for instance, in an ABM campaign. What's a marketing qualified account what does that cohort look like in that account how are those individuals of said cohort interacting across the web I like the idea that a buyer goes home he or she is still a consumer that's very true if you're utilizing intent properly and a lot of our stronger clients are using multiple platforms but they're also marrying it not only with their own first party data and I'm banging on about this pre-cookie apocalypse they're marrying it with our first party data and creating scores so We tend to push that story, obviously, because it speaks to our product set, but I think it also speaks to the way that marketeers are looking at creating campaigns going forward. From a purely statistical analysis perspective, like how much more effective is it when you're using intent data in a campaign? We've run a number of studies, statistically significant ones, very repeatable. So we attempt to do this without bias against a control group where we're looking at the effectiveness of Intent delivered ads, improvement in click-through rate, improvement of CTR is about 250%. We've also found that the cost per conversion for a lead goes down by almost 60%. So we know it works. To what degree are marketeers out here using it and can they use it better? Well, of course, everybody can always use it better and the market is maturing. And marketeers are starting to understand the need to shift how they look at the data sources that are coming in, how they're structuring their ad campaigns, their general media campaigns. I love the earlier quote, I think Jeff, you said media is a collection point for first-party data, not the end of the journey. That's such a great statement. And it's an excellent sales proposition if we're really talking about getting customers more involved in generating data that they're going to be able to action and trust going forward. And to reiterate, I think intent is just a part of it.
0: last question, that I wanted to hit you guys with, and it wouldn't be a tech podcast without asking this. (laughs) What role do you think AI is going to play in B2B marketing? I feel like AI already plays a role in some of the things that we do. A lot of hype around generative AI at the moment. I think Facebook's already using it to build ads and picking up their engagement rates. Do you see it playing a a role in the near-term, mid-term, long-term in what we do? So Joe, maybe starting with you on that.
1: Yeah. Oh, definitely. It's very exciting. As you said, it's already being used to create lookalikes and things like that. Probably the thing that I get the most excited about with LinkedIn is the future vision of LinkedIn is to shift from being just a networking platform to, you know, a, a Wikipedia of sorts of knowledge sharing by experts in the industry. And AI is going to help that happen. We've got this new a new product or a-, a new article or a new editorial piece, I suppose is a better way of putting it called collaborative articles. I don't know if anyone's seen them, but basically AI generates an article around some thought leadership. For an example, how do you market to Gen Z? And then it uses skills matching based on people's profiles and then sends the article to these people curated by our editorial team for them to weigh in. I've actually seen this because my husband works for a big retailer and he received an article around a legislative change that's happening in Australia in retail. And someone in the editorial team introduced themselves and said, would you be interested? What's your thoughts on this article? And so he commented on it and I think it probably was sent to 50 other people like him. And as a result, the end product is a really well thought out, robust using AI to do the grunt work, but getting expert opinion to layer in some some areas. So it's a multi, multifaceted piece of information for anybody using like a search tool within LinkedIn. So I think that's really exciting. That's only just started.
0: Amazing, And Jason your thoughts.
2: Okay. So, uh, you you know, I have opinions on this and I'm not going to say they're contrarian, but a lot of this is driven from my time with IDC. We have a large practice around AI and the future of AI. So just bear with me and uh, I'll try to give a bit of a different perspective here. I wouldn't say that we're in some form of a hype cycle right now around AI. Okay. I would use a slightly different metaphor and it's an imperfect metaphor, but Let's assume I woke up one day and decided I wanted to be a really good cook, okay? And suddenly I'm bombarded with Heston Blumenthal and all these ads for kitchen gear and the gourmet supermarkets and people doing molecular gastronomy. And that's sort of, I think how, especially in the, in the with respect to marketeers, that's how AI is being presented right now. So if we stick with this kitchen cook analogy, Really, it boils down to gear, ingredients, and technique, okay? And there's a distinct lack in the technique, and there's a distinct lack in ingredients. So again, building on this analogy, the ingredients really are around quality of data, privacy issues, compliance issues around data, trustworthiness of data and its sources. Technique is, it boils down to lack of qualified data scientists in the market, lack of skills in data management, all right? And if we just pull back a little from there, I've got some studies that we've just released in the market on the IDC side and really great work on their part. We look at, and very specific to the marketing function, AI, of course, like every other technology is evolving. So right now, what we see really and what we're talking about primarily are are business apps and platforms, right? So content generation, content curation, summarization, sort of what uh, Joe was talking about with LinkedIn's new product, which I think is super then you've got bots for all forms of communication with various different types of audiences, both internal and external. You've got the segmenting and targeting and orchestration tools that have been around for a while. So sometimes those get conflated with AI. Of course, you've got the tools that assist in ad buy, ad collateral, and then the ones around pipe development and support. And again, these are all the things that we're very, very familiar with. Now, my take on this is that That's stage one of the evolution specifically to the marketing organization. Stage two is, and we're already seeing this, the integration of AI into search. Now, right now, very arguably, Microsoft is well ahead of Google, but to try and count Google out in this is a little bit silly. But the third stage is really around actionable AI specific, again, to our set of tools. And when we're talking about LLMs or generative AI or GPTs, those are all the same right? I, I wouldn't drill down into the minutiae of the difference. But currently, if you look at ChatGBT, it's a very probabilistic AI, which means it's operating off of sort of a black box of data uh, and it doesn't really allow for any direct actions. So deterministic AI, I think, is where things are moving. And it, we're seeing starting to see a few vendors emerge as deterministic, meaning they're able to make recommendations very specific to a data set that you plug directly into it. So if you're making recommendations on brand, they're able to make better product recommendations to their customer set. And in conjunction with that, make updates to website experiences. So this is really exciting. Now, all of that's great, but then if we look at the companies that are deploying this, and I'm gonna pull from a, and you'll forgive the naming here. This is a recent survey we ran in Asia called the Data-Driven Intelligence Enterprise. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. They're analysts, they're not marketers. We looked at trends, spend patterns, et cetera, across multiple industries when it came to AI deployment. And what was pretty interesting is that if we look at the top five concerns around deploying AI, the first and far away it's data integration, right? And this speaks again to the, both the technique and to a degree, the ingredients portion of the metaphor. So many sources of data existing in so many different places. The second problem there was the availability of skilled data scientists. And within that, we're also lumping things like just random inefficiencies that exist in the current tech stack. So I was just talking to a CTO friend of mine at Peer Storage, and their position is that, of course, we have data scientists that aren't being utilized properly because there's latency issues with how the data is managed and piped back to them. Top concern three and four is trustworthiness and compliance. So again, we're still seeing issues around data. And then, uh, you know, lastly, it was uncertainty about it, business outcomes. We also looked at organizations that had completed AI projects and we asked them if it was successful, what was successful about it? But if it failed, what did you think the reason for failure were? And the top four, which all came out the same, was the project was too complex. The tech was non performing there was difficulties with data security data compliance and outcomes as a whole were subpar so I'm not throwing water on the AI party that is about to begin I certainly think it's going to advance I do think we're not necessarily at a stage where we're able to move beyond very simple app deployments to solve very basic problems that will of course change but much like any other big tectonic shift in technology, make no mistake about it, This is, that's what AI is. It is going to require a concerted effort, not only if, again, if we're talking about the marketing department, the CMO's office, but collaboration with the CIO, collaboration with legal departments, collaboration with the sales department to make it all work. Like I said, I find it very interesting, just as an aside, I'm on the executive committee within Foundry to help us determine what we're going to be doing with AI, how that will affect our products, how that will affect the way we look at editorial how that will affect even our customer base so that we can pivot with them
0: yeah it sounds like it's happening there was a heap that we could unpick there the really interesting things i took were just how ai is playing a role in all different aspects of the marketing and the sales funnel and the products that underpin them and it feels very real like it's not just a hype cycle anymore yeah it's again
2: same study we looked at the different departments utilizing it and marketing came up in 40 percent of the cases where respondents said yeah we are using ai Again, a lot of these companies are still saying, we're not yet at AI, we're using the existing data analytics and predictive analytics tools, which can sometimes be conflated with AI, but it's certainly moving forward.
0: Super interesting. As we're drawing near to the end of our time, I would love to finish with a hot take from each of you. What innovations are you most excited about for 2023 in content? What do you think? B2B marketers need to stand up and take notice of to improve their demand generation programs or to improve their customer experience around demand.
3: I think I need to build on the AI piece for a second before we jump into a hot take real quick. I will. I'll be super brief, I promise. Um, But we have been using AI for a while and I think that we are in a hype phase, in my opinion. I think we're also in the excitement slash fear phase, equal parts And I think that when we've seen generative AI, that's what's breached the public conversation. I think we've been using AI in marketing for a very long time. And what we use it for is to help us process huge amounts of data, turn that into information. One of my favorite analogies is getting information from the internet is like drinking from a fire hydrant. And and I think that AI helps us crunch that data to surface useful and decisionable insights. And I think that's really important because of the amount of exhaust or the data exhaust that The online advertising world creates. But I also think there's a really important public conversation to be had about what is okay when it comes to how we create things and how that is mechanized. And I think our response to ChatGP, and I think when we talked about this before, I I said I was part jealous, but also grateful that ChatGP didn't exist when I was at school. Because
1: Yeah, I have the exact same thing. Know, yeah. All those years you spend as a coordinator learning Absolutely. the tools, doing fairly mindless work, actually teaches you a lot of mm. basics that Absolutely. is going to be skipped over.
3: Absolutely. So I think hot take for I guess this year, I think we'll see people truly invest in future proofed identity mm-hmm. fabric and frameworks around that. And I think when it comes to AI, I think we will have a philosophical conversation. But does need to bleed into the commercial space. But also, it's. I think there's so many practical applications that generally drive real value. It's just a matter of making sure we have a nuanced conversation and an honest one about the best applications of it and introduce some rules in the same way with data. I agree.
0: Jason, can I get a hot take from you for 2023? What should marketers take away from this to improve their demand generation programs? How can they deliver better, more relevant, personalized experiences? What are you looking at?
2: Of course, I'm biased. Invest in any system, any tool, any activity that enables you to build your own first party data and layer it over with intent. To me, it's dead obvious. Yeah, it's not even a hot take. It's just a, this is where we're moving. I think this is Mm. what everybody needs to do.
1: And
0: Joe, finishing with you.
1: Yeah, I think probably more broadly, I think this year will be a year where B2B marketing is going to start to have its own playbook being written. To the point that I was making before about we shouldn't be looking at the funnel, we should be looking at creating demand and capturing demand. I know at Khan last year, our CEO was on the main stage talking around the fact that ServiceNow is probably not a household name, but its market cap exceeds Ford and Ferrari combined. Mm. So the point there was... The advertising industry is quite obsessed with B2C metrics. That seems to be where a lot of the focus and talent was. But some of the patterns that we're seeing on the platform is some big talent migration to these B2B tech companies. So I, I think that there'll be a new playbook. And all of the things that we've been talking about on this podcast about the intricacies of the buying cycle, understanding that capturing demand in B2B is not just about something that can happen within the quarter, but I think that we'll begin to see, particularly now that we're walking into a time of a lot of retracted spend, there'll be a lot of businesses that are doing it really well. They'll come out of this and they'll have the playbook for how you are meant to be running gold standard B2B marketing program. It.
0: I think there were some really interesting takeaways in, in what was a really wide-ranging discussion there. And I think there's lots of practical actions that people can take and put into their own programs as they're getting into their next planning cycle. But I'd like to thank all of the guests today for being part of this. Genuinely appreciate you coming in and spending your time and sharing your thoughts. Guys, thank you. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the Merkle B2B Demand Gen Blueprint podcast series. If you'd like to find out more about Merkle or the Merkle B2B superpowers research, you can visit us on our website or email us on inquiry at merkleinc.com.au or click the link in the episode description below. Thanks again.